0: We are continuing today in the series that we've been in called Not Alone, looking at the subject of anxiety and, and fear and worry and facing those things together. And today we're continuing in that. We're tackling a subject that we called Whatever is True. And I kind of want to put a question mark at the end of that like, Whatever is true? Uh, all you have to do is look around in our culture, in any of the conversations that we have, or many of the conversations, on any of the news channels that we watch and news reports that we watch. It's easy to come away kind of going, what is true, honestly? I feel like in some ways we are in a cultural crisis, a truth crisis. As you, as you watch the news and you hear these different stories of, uh, of whether it's science or politics or whatever it is, it seems like in any conversation you have, there are two sides, and these two sides are polar opposites. And both sides, whether it's politics or whatever it is, claim that they are true and the other one is not true. And that, in the media at least, they're now saying that the other side is lying. <laughs> like both sides say that. And the problem is that's cheating. <laughs> because if both sides can simply say that the other side is lying, how are we ever supposed to actually find what's true? And each week there's a new story. Uh, of one of our leaders or a politician, or a celebrity or a producer or a pastor who's been caught up in some sort of scandal, some sort of lie. And you look at it from the outside and you go, I don't know how to find truth in the midst of this. What is true? And each new story is an opportunity for us to feel like no one can be trusted, that that nothing is what it appears, that everyone is corrupt and everyone is out for themselves and it's not just celebrities i mean you take all of these different news stories that are coming in all the time in our lives and you couple that with the fact that more and more the worldviews in our culture are either sort of a postmodernism, where there is no absolute truth there is no greater narrative this life is all there is and then you die <laughs> hope or you par- you you, you hold that up against like a pluralism that basically says any truth is okay. Whatever you want to believe is okay. No truth is truer than any other truth. And if you believe that they are, then you're narrow-minded and a bigot. Right? These are the two prevailing ideas, which is confusing. Either there's no truths at all or there's lots of truths and you could pick one or two or whatever works for you. I think in many ways we live in a post Truth, world. And in an era where there is no absolute truth, in a world where we can't ever seem to get to what is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, I think we're left with the question, what is true? Which is an existential problem for us as humans. As humans, we are wired to want to know. We are wired to ask questions. We are wired to seek and understand the meaning of life, the bigger purposes and pictures of what life is all about. We need to make sense of our world. We need to find security in life and find meaning and purpose. George Steiner, the literary critic, once famously said about humans, more than Homo sapiens, we are Homo querens, the animal that asks and asks. We're wired to want to find answers. And so in a world that, that, that claims that there is no, in a culture that claims that there is no truth or where anything can be truth, We are left with a struggle. Without any kind of central truth, it feels a little bit like we are culturally unmoored. Like there is no center, there is no anchor, there is no center line that we can follow. Like we're adrift. And I have to think that this shift culturally has perhaps contributed to the record number of people in our culture who feel anxiety and fear and worry and depression. I think... Anxiety, perhaps, the subject that we've been looking at for the last five weeks, has at its core, at least in some ways, very real truth crisis. Anxiety is, is our brain trying to process all the stimuli that's coming, all these messages that, we, that there are threats all around us, so that the world is collapsing, and that the global warming, and blah, 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 processing all of that, and then adding into that its own messages, its own threats that it's identified and for us to try to process what is true, what are real threats, and what is simply our mind playing tricks on us is almost impossible. And yet our mind bombards us with messages that we struggle to navigate. Messages that we're not smart enough, or we're not thin enough, or we're not safe enough, or rich enough, or invested well enough for our future. Messages that, that we aren't attractive enough. Messages that maybe the marriage isn't worth saving. Messages that we won't make it. Messages that this life is all there is. I don't know what messages your brain tells you, but by and large, these messages aren't true. And yet, in the moment, in our minds, they feel so true. I think it's a little bit like that thing that happens where you wake up after a really, really vivid dream, and you spend those first few moments of the night wondering, was that actually real? Is this real? What's real? You know in your head it's not, but in the moment, in the quietness of your room, it feels so real. And in your mind, all the stimulation that you've received is real. That's, that's what anxiety can feel like. I woke up the other day, um, not in the middle of the night. I woke up in the morning after a wonderful night of sleep. <laughs> I woke up and I was laying there thinking about this, this idea that that our that I'm raising three kids. I'm raising three kids and trying to teach them truth in a world that tells them that there is no truth or that they can choose whatever truth they want. And how on earth do you navigate that as a parent? I thought to myself, I wish there was like some tether line, some safety line, some cable that points directly to truth that I could tether them to. Like hook a carabiner on it and send them through, knowing that whatever hits them, they will be able to make it to truth. If they'll make it safely to the other side through junior high and high school and college and finding their way as single people. I wish there was a line that I could tie them to to make sure that they would find safety. Do we have any scuba divers in the room? Anybody that's ever scuba-dived ever? Really? No one? We got a couple. Okay, well done. You're brave. <laughs> I've never actually scuba-dived before in my whole life, uh, and it seems like a horrible idea that I did. But I've read, I've read that with scuba divers, when, when a scuba diver is going to prepare for a dive, and they're going to an area where perhaps they're working under water construction, or where there's going to be um, maybe debris or cloudy waters, if they're doing, uh, for instance, salvage work, or if they're going into cave diving, or they're going into a dive that has a lot of currents, before they dive... They tie a safety line to the boat, and they send that down first. And then they tether themselves to that safety line so that they know that no matter how dark it gets, no matter how murky the waters get, no matter how strong the currents they're swimming through get, they can be assured that they'll be able to find their way back to safety. I wish I had a safety line like that for everyday life that I could lock myself onto lock my kids onto, so that when they go through the murky waters, when they hit crazy new currents and crazy new ideas, I know and they know that they are moored, that they are tethered, that they are tied to a truth that transcends. They'll find their way to safety and security and home. When I face seasons and episodes of anxiety and fear and depression, I wish that I could anchor myself to some greater tether line, a safety line that keeps me anchored to the ship, the ship that's above water, keeps me anchored to truth. Well, fortunately, Scripture has a lot to say on this subject. Let's turn together uh, to the New Testament book of Philippians chapter 4. And as we do, I want to let you know that if you're here today and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to send you one uh, as you go. There's stacks of them on the doors at the back. So Philippians chapter 4, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi, the Apostle Paul who had endured so many experiences that should have caused him crippling anxiety, instead wrote these words, these words that we've been working on memorizing over the past few weeks, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that we can live with joy. We can rejoice in any and every circumstance because God is at hand, and even better, God is at hand and He cares. God wants us to bring our fears and our concerns and our worries and our doubts and everything to him and ask him to move and to work and to change things. And Paul promises that if we do, the peace of God, the shalom of God, this extraterrestrial, supernatural peace of well-being and wholeness will guard our hearts. But even more, even better, it'll guard our minds. And then Paul gives us a model of what a guarded mind can look like he continues in verse eight finally brothers whatever's true whatever's honorable whatever's just whatever's pure whatever's lovely whatever's commendable if there's any excellence if there's anything worthy of praise think about these things these are the things that a guarded mind is able to dwell on the new living testament uh, new living translation which is my personal favorite for kind of personal studying stuff, says it this way. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Fix your thoughts. The transliteration of that Greek word that here is rendered as fix is the word "logizomai." Max Lucado, in his book that we've been looking at, Anxious for Nothing, points out that the root word in Greek is the same word as the word that we use for logic. He's saying that our reasoning, our logic, our thoughts, are one of the means that we have of facing our anxieties. Our minds, which so easily ensnare us in anxieties, can also be the very tool, the God-given, the God-empowered, the God-guarded tool that can help us to escape and to face and to live in the midst of our anxieties. He's saying, in the face of all kinds of messages, both from within our own brain and from external sources, external voices, fix your mind on what is true. Tether your mind to what is true. Think about truth. And there's tension in that, at least for me as I read it. I mean, the previous verse, verse 7, seems to indicate that, that God will supernaturally guard our hearts and our minds. In Christ that he's going to do that in us. And yet here Paul seems to be kidding that we have a role to play as well, that there's work that we need to do as well. This is not a new concept for Paul. Paul regularly uses this language of here's what God is doing, what only God can do, and here's what we can do to be ready to receive what God is doing in us. In Romans 12:1, for instance, it says, "And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you." Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. And then in verse 2, this is the important part. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Paul gives them what they are to do, or what they should do, or in this case, not do. Don't copy the behaviors and the customs of this world. But then list for them the things that only God can do. It says, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And then he finishes it with the promise, as Paul often does. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect and true. I added that last part. Then you will learn to know God's truth. Paul lists what they can do, but then he gives them a list of what only God can do. Transforming them into new people. How? By changing the way they think. Which is is hard to get my head around. It says that God will make them a new person by changing the way they think. What we think about, how we think matters. And here... Now, uh, Back in Philippians chapter 4, Paul has outlined for them the actions that they can take, like bringing their anxieties and their fears and their worries to God with thanksgiving. And then outlines the things that only God can do. God will guard our minds and God will give us new minds that are able to focus on truth. But that brings us back to the question, what is truth? How do we find truth? How do we find and fix our mind on truth? Again, Paul speaks to that specifically. I want to go to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, where Paul says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden in Christ. That phrase, your real life. It's interesting. What does that mean, your real life? This life feels awfully real to me, sometimes a little too real to me. What does that mean? The message says it this way. It says that there is a realer reality, a realer life than the life we're experiencing. Let's read. It says, so if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorb the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what's going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though it's invisible to spectators, is with Christ and God. He is your life. When Christ, your real life, remember, shows up again on this earth, you'll show up too, the real you, the glorious Paul is speaking to an identity that we have, identity that has been conferred to us, that has been given to us in Christ. And Paul seems to be saying that the truest true, the realest real, the real identity and purpose of life can be found only in Christ. I love that phrase, pursue the things over which Christ presides. Find the things in this world over which the rule and reign of Christ is at work. The kingdom of God is working, and then go there. That is where truth can be found, where Christ is at work. Fix your eyes and your mind and your hope on Christ. He is a safe deal. And I remember as a kid going to Emanuel Baptist Church in Wausau, Wisconsin. We sang this song that many of you are familiar with. It was written in 1922 by a woman uh, named Helen Lemel. It went like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I remember even as a kid kind of dismissing the song as corny. I remember as a teenager and in college dismissing the song as escapist. Like if things are going bad, just think happy thoughts about heaven and don't think about the world. Just escape the world. But as I've gotten older, and as I've experienced my own journey with anxiety, the song has come to have new meaning. In a, in a world where the troubles of this world come at us in high definition, in a 24-hour news cycle, in a world where our anxieties can seem so overwhelmingly real and in so incapacitating, the author of this hymn is, is, saying that we sh- is not saying that we should escape the world, But simply that by focusing on Jesus, the things of this world which are in such strong focus, such loud voices, can, even for a moment, grow strangely dim, slightly blurry, that they can recede from the foreground of our thoughts and the foreground of our vision and be replaced by the glory and the grace and the majesty and the truth of Jesus Christ. She's saying that in the midst of this real world, there's an even realer reality. And we get to see glimpses of that reality when we look to Jesus Christ. If even for a moment. And that Jesus promises that that reality will be fully realized reality when he returns. The song I found out this week as I was looking it up was actually inspired by another remarkable woman. Lilius Trotter was a 19th century woman who was a missionary to Algeria, a Muslim country in northern Africa. And if you just pause right there for a minute and think about the the challenges and the adversities and the real threats and anxieties that a 19th century single woman as a Christian missionary living in a Muslim country that persecuted Christians. Think about all the real anxieties and fears that this woman faced. And yet her goal wasn't to escape reality. Rather, it was to experience Christ in the midst of her reality, walking alongside of her, giving her grace in the midst of her circumstances. In fact, giving her enough grace that she could return to the work of bringing that grace to the hostile audiences of Algeria. This wasn't escapism. This was learning for her, learning how to refill her grace tank so that she had enough grace not only to survive but to bring that grace, that hope, that <clears throat> love to the country around her, to an audience that didn't even know they wanted it. In one of her journals, she wrote these words on how she survived in the face of such adversity. And these words inspired the hymn Turn your soul's vision to Jesus and look and look at him. And a strange dimness will come over all that is apart. What Lemmel and Trotter both knew as true, their truth, was that when they put their focus on Christ, their very real worldly problems receded into the background. Christ was their safety line, their true north, the thing that kept them, the person that kept them, heading towards safety through stormy waters. And Paul makes the <coughs> same point throughout the Book of Philippians. Paul's life and hope and future are anchored in Christ. Christ. Uh, Chris, rather, Christ, oops, Chris, our pastor, uh, (laughs) pointed out somewhere in this series that, oh boy, that Paul, uh, that Paul references the name Jesus Christ. Something like once every two point something verses. That that Christ just permeates this whole book. That is where, that is where Paul found his hope. That was his safety line. And here in verse 8, Paul is saying, fix your mind on Christ. Christ, who is true and who is honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Focus on Christ, who is excellent and worthy of praise. Christ is the safety line. Stay tethered to him. Stay connected to him, and you'll make it through the storm, whatever that storm is, whether it's anxiety or depression or career or whatever it is that you bring into this place today. And not just to make it through. But to have peace and even joy, even be able to rejoice in it. Chris also said somewhere in the series that this idea of rejoice is such a strange thing. Typically, rejoice is something you do after something good has happened, right? But for those of us who live in the midst of anxiety and anxiety that is ongoing, oftentimes you look at this and you go, this isn't the after yet. This isn't the part where you get to celebrate, where you get to rejoice. I'm still in the middle of this. But Chris pointed out that Scripture, throughout Scripture, presents us with these already afters. And that has been one of the big takeaways for me. These things that are already true, that God has already accomplished, battles that have already been won, and we can live in and celebrate and rejoice in those already afters. I found a great article uh, this week as I was studying from from an organization called the Mental Health Grace Alliance. We just highlighted a few of these already afters in Scripture. Things that Christ has already made realities that we can embrace for those who are in Christ. This list comes directly from there. They say that Paul, in the book of 1 Timothy, wrote to Timothy. And we spent a little bit of time in First and Second Timothy recently as a church. And he said these words. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you. Paul is reminding Timothy and us that while he still remains in a battle, while we are still in this world, the outcome is already determined. It's an already after. We know who wins. And Paul is reminding us that our permanent security, our permanent destiny, as children of God, as adopted sons and daughters of the King who are cherished and loved and who are made righteous in Christ, is already accomplished. So we don't have to copy or conform to the patterns of this world. We don't have to believe the lies that this world puts in our brains about who we are. Paul said, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Your true identity is already established. So fighting the good fight simply means don't give up, don't give in to anything contrary to what Christ has already fulfilled in you. Despite the condition, whether it's depression or anxiety or whatever the challenge is, Take hold of, fix your thoughts on, focus on what you have, and the rest in your new creation reality. And rest in your new creation reality. This is one of the ways that we turn our eyes on Jesus. One of the ways that we pause and turn down the noise and fix our eyes on Jesus and rest in who he says we are. Let's review just some of the scriptures that they highlight in this article. The first it says, Your breakthrough in Christ has already been fulfilled. And then I list just some of the scriptures that those come from. This is an already after that we can rejoice in. Jesus has already made a breakthrough once and for all. The power of sin and the power of death is broken. We are completely new and lacking in nothing. We no longer need to strive for more of God's blessing or more of God's grace or more of God's love or more spiritual breakthroughs. It has been accomplished in us. What we do is work towards living into that reality and experiencing and growing in our wholeness in Christ. Number two, the wholeness and oneness with God is fulfilled. There's never any distance or separation. God, from whom we had distance because sin separated us from God, that has now been fully and completely restored through Christ. Jesus is at rest with us, and we are at rest with him. We are complete and have oneness in him, with God and with one another. He has already made us secure overcomers through faith, resting in our eternal security. So we don't have to strive anymore to achieve more faith or more freedom. Number three, his grace works within us for our benefit. We rest in knowing that he is guiding us by grace and working in us toward his good advantage, will, and pleasure. So there's no need to strain ourselves to get more grace or more blessings from God. They are at our disposal. They are given to us. And then finally, and this is my favorite, Scripture says that God looks at us and says, I'm satisfied with you. Christ is already our security as author, perfecter, and finisher of faith in our lives. He cares for us and with us through all of the afflictions, all of the trials. There's no need to impress him or achieve anything for him to be free from our painful circumstances. Christ is in the midst of them and knows them. We can't hide them from him and he won't be impressed if we can beat them. He wants to do that in us. That's the safety line that we can hold tightly to through the rough and cloudy waters of anxiety. God is at hand. God is with you. But anxiety hurts. Anxiety is hard. And simply giving moral, I mean, mental assent to these things doesn't feel like it can be enough. How do we actually endure resting in these truths of Scripture? They end the article with a couple of great insights that I think are really, really helpful on how we can endure. They said that oftentimes, uh, they say endure the hardship and fight the good fight by accepting how depression, anxiety, or any other mental health challenges affect you. Oftentimes, uh, when we position this as you have to fight against it. But the truth is, in the same way that we know that if you get a cold, uh, you can't fight the cold by by actively fighting. You fight by resting, by acknowledging that you need helpful tools and resources, by changing the way you eat or the way you sleep. And yet we don't necessarily do that with mental health stuff. While while they're, they're certainly not comparable, we need to be able to recognize that this is a This is something that actually is affecting us. It doesn't mean that you have a spiritual failure or the depression or anxiety or or your identity. But it does mean that there's a condition that affects you. And as a result, we need to dress and affect the way we live. We may need to rest, find healthy tools and time to improve. Let's not turn this into a spiritual failing. Any more than a cold is a spiritual failing. And this is the second one, and I, I love this one. Fight the good fight. Knowing that Jesus is holding you more than you're trying to hold him. I think Jesus is the safety line that can bring us through the stormy water. And as tightly as we hold on to him, he's holding on even more tightly to us. Even more. Jesus who made you and knows you. Jesus who said that he is the way and the truth and the life is holding on to you even more than you were holding on to him. Even more With this new, secure perspective, your prayers, your your Bible study, your Bible reading, your worship, all those things aren't striving to somehow achieve more grace from God or more acceptance from God. It's living into the reality who God already says we are. It's living into the relationship that God has already reestablished, a beautiful fellowship that we already have with God. In a world where there seems to be a truth crisis, Where there's no truth or where anyone can choose whatever truth they believe. I have made the choice to believe what scripture says. About what scripture says about who God is. And to believe what scripture says about who God says I am. I've chosen and it's my choice. Each of us has a choice. That's the benefit of this world. I've chosen to believe that God has a greater purpose in this world that he is working out. And he's given us his word and his son and his spirit to be our guide, to be our safety line to navigate this world. I choose to believe that my identity is not my anxiety. My identity is not what culture says it is. My identity is who God says I am. That's the safety line to help me through. It sometimes feels a lot like I'm swimming through murky waters in a current that is constantly changing. What's yours? What's your truth? Each of us has a choice to make. Do you believe anxiety's truth? Or culture's truth? Or God's truth? Do you want to see yourself the way that anxiety sees you? The picture it paints? Or do you want to see yourself the way that God sees you? We want to invite you on this journey with us of exploring what is this this truth that has become an anchor for us, a center point for us, Scripture. And we don't ask that you accept all of it just willy-nilly. But we ask that you lean into it with us. Experience this God with us. Experience the life that we are discovering in His truth, the identity that we are discovering in this truth, because we believe that it is the truest true and the realest real. Clay Scroggins, in his book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge, says this, and I'll end with this. I found that amid swirling emotions, my ability to calmly process my thoughts with awareness and emotional intelligence is largely dependent on the security of my identity. Your identity is the right identity, when you let it be defined by what God says about you. Our thoughts and our feelings are liars. They're trying to tell us something that's simply not true. Elevating the voice of God above the volume of these lies is essential to allowing God to form a healthy sense of identity in you. He's saying what others have said before him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth we will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let me pray for us. God, we come into this place um, today, bringing all kinds of stuff with us. Um, And for some of us, that is anxiety and fear and worry. God, we thank you that you've given us your word. God, I know that for many of us in this room, it is difficult to simply accept that. That's true. Um, but God, you've promised that your spirit is at work and active, drawing us in, revealing you to us. So God, I pray that you would do that, that you would tether us. And in the same way that we are seeking to hold you, you would hold us even more. and think we'd experience that in this moment. God, for the people in this room that, that perhaps have come in with some sort of load, some sort of anxiety, some sort of fear, God, I pray you'd call them. Your word says that we can bring those to you, and even if we don't necessarily buy into all of this, even if we don't necessarily know that all of this is one hundred percent true, God, your word says that we can hold up our cares and our fears and our concerns to you and ask you to move and work in them. So, God, we do that, move and work, that we might know your peace, that we may know your joy, that we may know your truth. That we might know you by the Spirit of God in the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen.